me. Oh, well, thank you for coming on. Where did you uh, grow up at? I grew up in Huntington Beach, California. Really? So you grew up there, and then you went from there to, uh, you moved from there to, you went to Washington, didn't you? Yes. Yeah, well, I went actually was, went to Bard College for a year uh, in the middle of nowhere in the forest and uh, felt like I was going to lose my mind. So I decided to transfer to a city and as a sophomore started at George Washington University in D.C., which is where I began my career in journalism. When you were growing up, was there somebody that you looked up to or what got you into journalism? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I always loved writing and I always loved talking to people. So my mom jokes that when I was first learning to talk that she would uh, put me in the grocery cart at the grocery store and I would read everybody's name tags. Like I was just always a total gab. I'd be like, hi, Alicia. How are you, Joe? Um, so I always love talking to people and I always love learning about their stories. And I have journals going back to the time that I was five years old, literally. Wow. So um, in college at GW, I, it was just a natural fit for me to take a class in journalism. I loved it. And that was that. You went to a uh, Bard College and that's a private college, right? Yes, it is. I didn't. I didn't even know they had. Did you know that they had private colleges? I'm an idiot. I don't have 10, <laughs> 10 million degrees. But what's a, what's a private college like? What's that like? I mean, so Bard was very, very different from George Washington University. Uh, Bard is a small liberal arts college that, as I mentioned, is in the middle of nowhere, and um, is a pretty radical school. A liberal school, I would say, and that was where I discovered philosophy and I discovered psychedelics. They had a um, they had a, a program that was required for all freshmen that took us through philosophy, starting from Plato and the ancient Greeks all the way through the 19th century existentialists and Nietzsche. And then there were also a ton of kids there who were coming from New York City who grew up you know, taking the subway when they were 10 years old and getting into drugs at an early age. And so there was a big party culture at the school. And I discovered acid and mushrooms at the same time that I was discovering philosophers like Nietzsche. And that really kind of blew open my world and put me on this path of spirituality and discovery. Um, but the classes were very small and they were very centered around, um, sort of uh, deep critical engagement with the other students and with the teachers. And then when I went to GW, it was like a completely different world. All the kids were thinking about interning on the Hill and what their careers were going to look like and getting into politics. And so it was kind of a culture shock for me. Um, but yeah, they're both private schools and they're both very different. I, I like that because I, I think, just in my opinion, if you hadn't gone to a school like that, they would have never talked about Plato. Plato's awesome. That that got I that's <laughs> I got really into Plato. I started reading and reading, and then uh, I watched Graham Hancock and Graham Hancock's coming in, and he he thinks that every president should have to do <laughs> he thinks every president should have to do acid five times before they can become president. Because, because he feels like then they'll be more within self, more within nature, and maybe think clear, and maybe we can get along, like one of the articles you wrote about that was very good. Yeah. I mean, we, I talked about this a little bit with um, 
Pete or uh, your is he a producer for you or he's no? A he's a, he's just a friend of mine. He's a friend of mine. Oh, okay. I I had to take care of my little okay. daughter. Well, he's bril- he's brilliant. I really enjoyed speaking with him, oh, yeah, and, and we spoke a little bit about um, how psychedelics are, are just one way to awaken oneself. So they're a tool amidst of an infinite number of tools that exist for becoming more aware of what's going on within our internal space and using that to become more conscientious global citizens, we would hope. So when we talk about politicians, a lot of people joke, oh, yeah, all congressmen should be required to do acid or do mushrooms. <laughs> I mean, sure, that, that would be really interesting. And also, like, even just beginning congressional sessions with a 15 meditation, I think would completely alter the way that social discourse is unfolding within those spaces. That's a pretty good answer. <laughs> now, after, you know, you, you get into psychedelics and obviously you see what they could do, but you're, you've had a thousand jobs. So now, when you're at, like, CBS <laughs> News... You know, you you must be thinking differently than other people around you, because I'm, I'm, you know, as I we I get to learn about you, I'm like, wow, this, that, the other, and I've noticed with those that I've met that have done psychedelics, and I, you know, I just started to get interested in it. Everyone seems to be positive, and happier, and a better attitude. You know, not like me and Rob, where if I'm miserable, we want everybody else to be miserable. <laughs> <laughs> so when you go to yeah, CBS I mean, News, I mean, what's that? What's that like? Because you, you know, like you're into one thing, but then doing another thing with the journalist. Tell me about CBS News. That's really interesting. I mean, it was a really interesting way to begin my career, and I'm really grateful for it. So when I was a in between my sophomore and junior years of college at George Washington University, I got an internship at CBS Radio News. And Dan Raviv, who was a longtime correspondent and anchor at CBS, was my mentor. And he was my first journalism mentor. And I was so grateful and in awe of what he did. Um, I would just sit like a fly on the wall and watch him go live and interview every kind of person that you could imagine from politicians to celebrities to kind of men on the street, as we like to call them, maybe women on the street is the more PC version (laughs) of that these days. And he was able to navigate between so many different kinds of topics and beats so quickly as I'm sure you and, and other radio hosts are. And, um, And I was just fascinated by that, and I was fascinated by the news cycle and how news stories are chosen. Um, You know, I learned from the inside about essentially how what's really happening on the back end of most major broadcast news networks is that folks are paying attention to the Associated Press and the Reuters newswires, right? And that's where they're getting their news and then from there there's sort of a pipeline from these these news wires to the to the air and i was very fascinated as well as a philosophy major um in this idea that while there were so many things happening all over the world that you would continually see the same stories being repeated over and over and over again on the five major news networks, right? Which is CNN, CBS, NBC, ABC, and Fox. And 
you know, for me, that really prompted me to want to go more deeply into other kinds of reporting. Because even though I obviously saw the value of broadcast news networks, I also felt like there was, I want to say, sort of a dysfunctional relationship between the news that was being chosen to be broadcast and the business side of newsrooms. And I, you know, started digging into analytics and ratings and really figuring out why why is it that, you know, someone gets, you know, a, a child goes missing in the middle of America and we're talking about this one child for, you know, weeks and weeks and weeks on end. And meanwhile, there's genocides happening in other countries and, you know, transgender folks and other marginalized communities are frequently being, um, you know, violently attacked and going missing. And we're not talking about them. So, um, so that was what really prompted my transition from broadcast news into print reporting and investigative reporting, because I wanted the opportunity to go more deeply into untold stories. Yeah. You know, I can relate to that because, uh, we had we who do we have in here that uh, had gone through this episode is brought to you by Manscaped.com. Breaking news: Manscaped now sells beard products. That's right, they are once again revolutionizing men's grooming with brand new Beard Hedger Pro Kit. From a beard trim to a fresh shave, the technology behind Beard Hedger Pro Kit allows you to shave your signature beard look. Now you can finally use Manscaped products to make your drapes match your carpet by going to manscaped.com and using code MSCS Media for 20% off and free shipping. No one likes a weird beard, so say goodbye to all the stubble trouble with Manscaped's Pro Beard Kit. It all starts with the Beard Hedger. This thing is a monster of fixing faces. First off, this cordless trimmer has a rotary wheel that gives you 20 hair cutting lengths all with one guard. No more messing around in drawers, this color one, that color one, all with one guard. Plus, it's waterproof, so you can shave in the shower and avoid all that hair in the sink. The Pro Kit doesn't end there, though. First, there's the beard shampoo and conditioner. You need to remember your hair is different. Next, Manscaped's beard oil. Cap it off with beard balm. The Pro Kit also comes with three different gifts, a beard brush, comb and scissors to ensure your beard is ready to impress so get 20 percent off and free shipping with the code mscs media at manscaped.com that's 20 percent off and free shipping at manscaped.com use the code mscs media manscaped beard hedger one stroke one guard 20 lengths link is in the description below this episode is sponsored by Z-Biotics. What is Z-Biotics Pre-Alcohol Probiotic? The Z-Biotics Pre-Alcohol Probiotic is a genetically engineered probiotic you drink before drinking alcohol to avoid that rough next morning and get back to living your life. PhD scientists invented it because they know the real problem is not dehydration. It's a toxic byproduct of alcohol. And Z-Biotics Pre-Alcohol Probiotic is the only product that breaks it down. Just remember to drink responsibly and plenty of rest too. Every time I have Z-Biotics before drinking, I'm amazed at how good I feel the next day. Z-Biotics is a must-have for me because it means I'm still going to make my daily workout even if I have a few drinks the night before. That's important to me. You can get Z-Biotics for 15% off your first order using my code MSCSMEDIA checkout. I recommend getting the six-pack. That's what I got. It's a great deal. You have a couple extra to share with friends. Go to zbiotics.com backslash MSCS Media. That's Z as in zebra, biotics, B I O T I C S.com backslash MSCS Media. 
or scan the QR code on the screen right now and get 15% off your first order. You will not be sorry. Link is in the description below. I think that the issue, as far as I can tell, although I'm open to being proven, proven wrong with data and investigative news stories about the relationship between what's aired and, and, um, and advertisers. But from what I can tell, really the issue is that journalists are people and that we have this illusion that journalists can be, quote, objective, right? But we saw in uh, during the, uh, the first race uh, with pr former President Donald Trump that that wasn't the case and that when journalists started to feel really strongly about something, they were unable to keep their opinions and their perspectives from seeping into what was supposed to be, quote, objective reporting. And it blew up this notion that objectivity can or does exist in reporting. Journalists, like everyone else, are a part of the system, and they're being conditioned to believe certain things, like, for example, that we should all get vaccinated. Now, let me say, I did get vaccinated. I'm not anti-vax, but the belief among the Western medical community and the powers that be that's trickling down to the general populace is that people should get vaccinated, right? And there's this stigma, if you dare, to question that. And journalists are just, you know, so they're just inheriting the beliefs of the culture at large, and that's what they're reporting. I feel I feel so bad for you, journal. I mean, I know you're not. Oh, yeah, you still are. <clears throat> because it seems like you get cornered. You get cornered against the wall. You know, and, and why can't somebody just choose what they want to do? If you want to get vaccinated, get vaccinated. If you don't, don't. I don't know why this has to be such a big, crazy deal, but there's always an agenda. Now, I know you reported when uh, they hit uh, bin Laden, right? You were put. You well, that was the first big story that I. Um, that was actually what got me my first job. So I was an intern um, still at CBS News at the time that um, Bin Laden was killed, and um, I, you know, I wasn't actually. It was at night time that the news was announced, and um, I was just sitting in my apartment <laughs> near my college campus, and I, I just without even being assigned to do this because it was really kind of beyond the scope of my role as an intern. I went to the newsroom. I got a recorder. I ran down to the White House. I started interviewing people. I came back to the newsroom. I was the first one in the country above all the other news networks because I lived right by the White House to have sound bites of people celebrating the death of bin Laden. And we got that and I, we got that audio over to the uh, the main head, CBS headquarters in New York, and it went out to all of the affiliates who aired it all across the country. And that was what really got me my first job in journalism. They didn't have, a, they had never hired an intern like that before. But before I graduated, they made a job for me, and they they hired me at the at the network, which was amazing. Congratulations! I'm so so grateful for that opportunity. Congratulations on that. I mean, it was a long time ago, but, but hey, you know. it's still it's it's still part of you know it's still it's part of what got you to where you're at now. Hustle, hustle, hustle. Yeah, hustle, hustle. So then, when you're done with the CBS and and all that, then what do you do after that? What, which of the fifteen well, so things would you like to just tell me about? <laughs> I really, really missed Los Angeles. I didn't like living in Washington D.C. I didn't like the culture of Washington. I found it very superficial. I remember one time being down at Capitol Hill and seeing what I, I think was a congressman walk by with a totally stoic expression and Oakley sunglasses <laughs> on. And I said, 
I said sarcastically to him, you look important. I just couldn't stand the culture of Washington, D.C., and I really wanted to get back to Los Angeles where I grew up. So I took a job at KNX 1070, which was the affiliate here, and I did that for a couple years, but it was just, it was so hard. They put me on the overnight shift uh, while I was actually helping produce the morning broadcast, which started at um, 6 a.m. So I had to be in at 3 a.m., 3 a.m. to 11 a.m. And I was 21 years old. So I'm living with these two girls who are smoking weed and partying and they're coming home. And I'm going to sleep <laughs> because I have to, actually, they're pre-gaming and getting ready to go out. And I'm going to oh, sleep fuck. because I have to be up at 2 a.m. to get to the newsroom. So after two years of that, I just said, I can't do this okay, anymore. And for for those two-year hours, what, what were your hours to sleep for those two years? <laughs> what? what was your at? What was your at bedtime and wake up time for those two years oh <laughs> in, in college with two I roommates? Or, I used to go to bed around. I used to go to bed around five or six p.m. and it was horrible <laughs> because I was living in this cheap apartment that didn't have air conditioning. I just had a fan, and in the summer, I remember like lying in my bed and it was hot <laughs> and the fans going. Trying to go to sleep, and I remember really what got me really what encouraged me to quit is talking to the reporters and anchors who had been on this beat or been on this um, news hour for a long time. And basically what they said to me is you never get used to it because on the weekends or whenever it is that you're off, you know, your family wants you to go out to dinner or this or that. And you want to be a part, you know, but your bedtime's five. So you're just permanently, you're basically permanently jet lagged. And I said, there's just no way I can't do this. And I loved journalism. I, and I so badly wanted to stick it out. But at a certain point, I really had to look at what do I want my quality of life to be? You know, and, and that was just not it. So I quit. I pulled it to Eat, Pray, Love, and I bought a one-way ticket to Bali where I backpacked all around Southeast Asia by myself. And I wrote, I had a, a blog called The Backpackress. What was, was that like? Tell me some things that you saw. Uh, Shelby, tell me some what? things that when you, when you did that, tell me some things that you saw. You know, you're all by yourself. You got some balls. I don't. I don't think. I think I'd be afraid. <laughs> I don't know. I've the bulletproof vest on or something. But uh, oh no, it was kidding. it was an amazing experience. I bet. I, I bet you. It's I views, think probably like, the craziest thing that I did was I had I I at that time I had already um, I was obviously really into psychedelics already because I discovered them at Bard when I was eighteen. So I'd been tripping for about five years. I discovered Burning Man right out of college when I was twenty. So twenty one. So. Um, I already knew a lot of people who had gone to Bali and, and backpacked around and stuff, and they all told me the only way to get around the island or the best way was really by motorbike because the buses are terrible, public transportation is terrible, and the cabs are a total ripoff. They try and charge so, so much to tourists to take cabs from one part of the island to the other. So before I left, I got my motor, my my license, uh, my motorcycle driving motorcycle license, left. so I could ride a motorbike around <laughs> Bali. So you don't get take it to the cleaners crazy. by the cab. <laughs> that was crazy. I think probably the craziest thing that happened. I mean, a lot of crazy things happened to me, but one crazy thing that happened to me was when I met this really amazing German girl, um, and we decided we were gonna go take a motorbike to this volcano in Bali. And we got caught in a tropical storm, and it was literally like we were in the middle of a shower, and we were trying to drive down these windy roads through the jungle, and we couldn't see at all. So we pull over, and we're like, fuck, what do we do? And sorry, I'm allowed to say that. Yeah, 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 we're, yeah what you can do? say whatever you want. We're, we're on Spotify. Um, we can yeah, talk about anything we, we want. We ended up being taken in by this 
coffee farmer who gave us shelter in his little house and he made us coffee and we sat there with him. And that was probably one of the most special experiences that I had. He was so hospitable. See, that's why I asked, because see how cool that is? That would never happen out here in, in stupid civilization. Nobody's going to come and invite in. They're going to see you walking around with a backpack. They're going to lock the door and call the cops the pricks. But, you know, when you're out there in, in places like that, you know, it's, you know, it's like when I was growing up, you know, we had little neighborhoods and everybody, nobody locked their doors or anything like that. Not like now. Mm. And then, yeah. uh, what was the first psychedelic that you did? Was it acid? Mushrooms. Mushrooms. Uh, psilocybin? Yeah. Now, what, yeah. now, did you like, you actually ate the thing and can you tell me your first experience? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, so as mentioned, I was at Bard. Um, I I actually didn't know what mushrooms were. I had never heard of them. So I was friends with these three girls, and they suggested that we do mushrooms. And I was like, sure. I mean, I really had no idea what I was getting myself into. They, One of the girls bought the mushrooms. I don't know where they got them from. I can't remember. Um, and, yeah, we just took them in her dorm room and very quickly started to trip very hard i'm a lightweight so um whenever i drink ayahuasca the facilitator is like this is everyone's dose and this is shelby's dose because one <laughs> sip of something and i'm like i'm in another dimension so i started tripping very hard i don't fully remember everything that happened but i just discovered very quickly that for me psychedelics weren't recreational i struggled with internal distress and angst and anxiety and things from the time that i was very young i was bullied as a kid all throughout elementary school and middle school and so you know at double blind we often say we don't like to create hierarchies of set and setting and what we mean by that is that you know, set is the idea that you should go into a psychedelic experience with a, a, a good mindset and that you sh and setting is the idea that you should be intentional about where you have your psychedelic experience. So when we say we don't create hierarchies of set and setting for us, we're not we don't believe that the only way to have a transformative or meaningful psychedelic experience is on a couch with two therapists who have been trained by Johns Hopkins researchers and a blindfold. I'd rather be with a monk. have meaningful psychedelic experiences in many different ways. And as long as folks are being respectful of the cultures that these medicines come from, as well as being conscientious of themselves and their own bodies and their surroundings, we're all for it. And that means that if someone wants to do MDMA at a rave and dance all night long, go for it, have a ball. But for me, that's never been how psychedelics have been because whenever I do a psychedelic, all the, all of the stuff that's just li been living within me, arguably that I inherited from generations past, ancestral trauma that go even precedes my own life, comes to the surface. So I very quickly realized these are powerful medicines and they were medicines I wanted to cultivate a relationship with, but they weren't medicines that I was going to be doing just for fun. Right. Now, do you think there's, you know, with all the education that you have and data that you've studied, you know, everybody always says, hey, if you're going to do ayahuasca, if you're going to do this, make sure, like you were saying about settings. Do you think that really matters? Like if, if I'm in a bad mood and I go take ayahuasca versus being in a good mood, is there really, is there truth to that, that that could be the difference between a good time and a bad time? Absolutely. Really? Absolutely. And 
I want to, Good to know. <laughs> debunk this idea when people talk about set. Um, you know, I kind of gave a, a sort of the the simplistic standard definition of it, which is you should go in with a good mindset. But I actually want to debunk that notion because obviously people are doing psychedelics for severe mental health conditions like treatment-resistant depression and treatment-resistant post-traumatic stress disorder. So it's not like you have to be, you know, the happiest, best version of yourself when you take a psychedelic. But it's more about being conscientious of where you are at in that moment and preparing as best as you can to set yourself up for success. You can think about doing a psychedelic as essentially like the psychological or spiritual version of running a marathon. You're not going to go run a marathon when you've been eating McDonald's for the last week and you haven't stretched and you haven't hydrated and you know, you're not wearing the proper clothing. I mean, sure, you can do that, but you're probably going to be really unhappy that you did that. Oh, yeah. So The next day is not going to so be so your, good. So you do your best to prepare, knowing that you're maybe not going to be, you know, in the shape of an award-winning triathlete. Sorry, I'm not an athlete, so I'm using the wrong terminology. <laughs> but the point being, you know, you're not going to go into the marathon. You're not necessarily going to be, you know, at your peak um, performance. But you've gone in with your eyes wide open. You've read online. You know how long the marathon's going to be. You know how what the terrain is, is roughly going to be like. You know what might happen to you if you start to get really tired. You have all of those contingencies in place, and you have a support system. And that's really what doing an intentional psychedelic experience is about. I like that you went back to that because we have a lot of vets in, a lot of military guys. Some guys are into it, some aren't. But the guys that are, they're not in a good mood when they take it. But it keeps them, you know, it calms down the the post-traumatic stress syndrome. You know, it calms them down. It, it, it relaxes them. It gives them like a week or two of just not worrying about whatever happened wherever they were. So the standard is if you're not in a good place and a good scenery and in a good mood around good people, you're going to have a bad trip and it's going to be terrible. But friends of mine that you know were injured and have bad bad uh, post-traumatic stress syndrome they're not in a good mood when they take it so that's why i really wanted to ask you that because how can that work for them if that statement's fully true because they're different people because when they don't continuously not abuse it just take it you know regularly to stay stable they're perfect but when they don't i mean they might not be here tomorrow and one of them is no longer here. So that's why I, that's why I was asking that so much because it didn't make any sense. Now, when it comes to the, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, it's interesting to say that you would say that you have friends who need to consistently do psychedelics to kind of maintain their baseline because at least a lot of the data is showing that a few transformative psychedelic experiences can have a long-term impact on someone's diagnosis. And what distinguishes, say, MDMA or psilocybin from an SSRI or other pharmaceutical medications that have already been approved by the FDA is that they manage your symptoms, which is why you do have to take them all of the time, oftentimes for your entire life. Whereas with the psychedelic experience, the idea is that it's actually changing the way that your brain functions. 
So, and that that has a long lasting effect. And so that's not to say that if you do psychedelic three times that your post-traumatic stress disorder will be healed for the rest of your life and you'll never have to do a psychedelic again, but you certainly shouldn't need to be doing a psychedelic every month or even every three months to maintain your baseline. Good info. At least according to the data. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm, maybe it is every three months. I, I just know it's often, you know, but it, it's great. And I remember I remember there was a ton of research that I read about uh, ketamine for depression and everything else, like IV with ketamine drip. Now, when it comes to the, the microdosing, I'm sure you've been asked this a million times. I saw some of your articles. What is actually a microdose? You know, some packs, you know, when I research it, they'll say, 25 milligrams is a microdose. 50 milligrams is a microdose. 100 milligrams is a microdose. Well, it's different for everybody. Well, what's, what is a microdose and how is it supposed to work from the data that you know of and researched and experienced? Well, the first thing I'll say about microdosing is that microdosing within the psychedelic community is very controversial because there is limited rigorous double-blind randomized clinical trial data on the efficacy of microdosing so we're basically in a position with microdosing that we're in with cannabis in regards to a lot of conditions because there's actually far more psychedelic research than there even is cannabis research where we have thousands and thousands of people reporting anecdotally that microdosing has transformed their lives but we don't have the scientific data to back that up. And in fact, there's actually been a couple of studies that have shown that microdosing is a placebo effect. So at this point, the data is limited. I will say in terms of microdosing protocols and best practices, typically a microdose is defined as one-tenth to one-twentieth of a recreational dose. And typically people are microdosing either mushrooms or LSD, which are both considered classic psychedelics. So in the case of mushrooms, if you look up what a microdose is, and Double Blind has, you know, the magazine I founded has tons and tons of educational resources for free online about psychedelics, including a guide on microdosing mushrooms. It will tell you that a dose of microdose, a, a microdose of mushrooms is between 0.1 and 0.5 grams of psilocybin mushrooms, or 100 to 500 milligrams. Hmm. That's not really true. Most people are going to be somewhere around 0.1 or 0.2 grams of dried psilocybin mushrooms. Again, everyone's tolerance is different. Everyone's body is different. So as with all psychedelic experiences, best practices are start low and go slow. If you've never microdosed before, start with 0.1. Do that for two weeks or three weeks move it up to 0.15 or 0.2, do that again for another two to three weeks. Understand that as you start, that as you keep increasing your dose, there will be a certain point at which you go, I feel a little funny. This is not a microdose. <laughs> and on that, and, and when that day comes, you don't want to be planning to pick up the kids from school or going to take a meeting at the office. Um, <laughs> how long, how long does, uh, I, when I was in Colorado, I did the microdose, and for me, it, I don't know. I mean, I took a lot of it, and I, I, things just got sharper. Like, it, they just started to get sharper, but that was it. There was no fucking memory. You know, Joe Rogan and all them, he's trying to fucking, that, you know, I, if I microdose five, I can remember, I can look at this and look at that. Remember, I don't remember anything. I mean, I'll ever sharper. When you do, you know, psilocybin, 
the mushrooms, how long does it usually last on average? Not a microdose, like hours. a four to six hours. Yeah. So yeah, you better you better not have anything too important to do, right? Well, to be fair, if you if you're only increasing your dose by point zero five or point one grams at a time, and you were at a dose that felt subperceptual, which is really what microdosing is, you're not supposed to be you know, seeing any distortion of your environment or experiencing anything that is understood as a classic psychedelic symptom. Boring. And you increase by that. Boring. And you increase by 0.05 or 0.1, you're not going to be floored. That's a very small increase in a dose. You might feel a little funny. You might feel a little nauseous. You might feel a little uncomfortable. Or you might feel fantastic. You might feel like you smoked a joint and the world is glittering and you want to go on a hike or swim in the ocean or, you know, do something with your loved one. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but, um, so, so there isn't a huge risk there of, you know, um, there isn't a huge risk there of something really scary or, or deeply uncomfortable happening when you're increasing in, in, the, in that dose range. You just probably don't want to be driving when that happens. But at the same time, it only takes about, I mean, maximum, maximum three hours for a microdose to peak. So if you get up in the morning, say you get up at 8 or 9 a.m. On a, on a Saturday or a Sunday, which we always recommend people increase their dosage level on a day when they don't have anything really important planned, and you take your microdose, and then you do stuff around the house and whatever you're going to do, and it's like around lunchtime and you're feeling okay – you're you're good to go. Like nothing crazy is gonna happen after that. And then, so when you do that, are are, are you supposed to do like three days on, two days off? Is that accurate? Um, yeah. So, firstly, I will say, shameless plug, Double Blind has a Absolutely. course on microdosing. So, if folks want to learn how to microdose, we it's it's pre-recorded modules and live support and everything you could ever possibly need to know. Simply because I'm happy to answer your questions, but I'm not going to be able to give people all the information sure. they could ever possibly want on microdosing in a short yeah. interview. Um, but there are uh, a few different what we call microdosing protocols. Um, the most common ones are were established by James Fadiman, who's often considered kind of the father of modern microdosing. And his protocol is two days on, wait, is it two days on, one day off? Microdosing, yeah, two days on, one day, no, one day on, one day on, two days off? Oh gosh, don't quote me. It's either two days on, one day off, or one day on, two days off. Well, we have to go to the um, website to figure it out, look, right? Shelby, Shelby, we got to go to the website to figure it out. My brain is failing me right now. And then also you have uh, the protocol that was established by the mycologist Paul Stamets, and that one is five days on, two days off, or four days on, three days off. Um, but... They both say that the kind of the idea behind days on and days off are, there's a few ideas behind this. One is that um, you don't want to build up a tolerance and you can actually build up a tolerance to both mushrooms and acid if you're taking them consistently over time. Another is that Again, limited clinical data, but anecdotal reports say that the effects of microdosing actually last 
after the days that you take them. So in the case of Jim Fadiman's protocol, and I'm remembering now it's one day on, two days off, oftentimes people report that they take their microdose day one. Day two is actually their favorite day. They still feel the effects of the microdose. Day three, they're pretty much back at their baseline, and then they take their microdose again. I think I read that one. And wasn't the, the basis behind that that it was downgrading the beta receptors? They weren't so like the beta. This podcast is brought to you by Monster Energy. Tear into a can of the meanest energy drink on the planet, Monster Energy. It's the ideal combo of the right ingredients in the right proportion to deliver a big bad buzz that only Monster can. Monster packs a powerful punch, has a smooth, easy drinking flavor. Athletes, musicians, co-eds, Road warriors, metalheads, geeks, hipsters, and bikers dig it. You will too. Monster Energy is more than just the green OG. Monster has Monster Ultra, Juice Monster, Monster Hydro, Rehab Monster, Dragon Tea, Monster Max, Muscle Monster, and many more. Buy on Amazon, buy on Walmart, or go to monsterenergy.com and believe me, you'll find a place. Unleash the beast. Monster Energy. This episode is sponsored by Aurora. Do you know what the fastest growing crime in America is? For years, this crime rate has been surging and affecting millions of Americans. I'm talking about identity theft, and there's a new victim every 14 seconds. Yet despite this, those who have had their identity stolen are often shocked when it happens. That's why I'm excited to partner with Aurora, who is sponsoring this video. Aurora is identity theft protection, fraud monitoring, a VPN, password management, and antivirus software all into one easy-to-use app. Their VPN allows you to stay anonymous online by keeping your browsing history and personal information safe and encrypted. Protect you and your family from America's fastest-growing crime. Try Aurora for free for two weeks and see if you or anyone in your family's personal information has been compromised. Start your free trial today. Go to Aurora.com slash MSCS. The link is in the description below. By companies like MindBloom and uh, Wonder, is that what it's called? Wonder Med. Um, and basically what they're doing is they are, you just sign, you, you, you fill out an intake form, you do a short Zoom call with a psychiatrist, and then if they think that you're eligible, they will mail you a box of ketamine lozenges at home along with guided meditations and you just do it in your bed. And there's a lot of opinions flying around about this model is essentially a loophole that was created during COVID. Uh, Previously, um, there were much tighter regulations about what was allowed to happen virtually. And then there were some laws that were passed by Congress to enable, you know, virtual MD visits and stuff like that. And all of these telehealth companies popped up um, as a result. And and these ketamine companies are, are a part of that. So this story is really investigating what are the pros of this model, which are accessibility, of course. Uh, Ketamine IV treatments for depression, which you referenced before, have shown incredible promise, but are in the range of four to $6,000. And most people just can't afford that and it's not covered by insurance. So this is much, much more affordable. Plus, no matter where you live or if you're disabled or if you don't have access to transportation, it gets sent to your house. Um, But obviously the cons being 
you know, I mean, this is a, a pretty serious uh, treatment, and there are a lot of researchers and therapists and stuff who say that it's just irresponsible to let people be doing this stuff by themselves in their house. So, well, that, that article alone makes me want to read it. We have an op ed by Andrew Weil, which we're stoked about, um, and, and a lot of great stuff in here. So, I just said to uh, Rob, that article alone makes me want to read it. <laughs> Not really. I, yeah. I mean, yeah, fucking crazy. People That's are, mailing yeah, it out. I mean, mailing it out. Ketamine. I don't know. I, but I, I can see the pros to it, like you said, because, you, you know, if you need it. But I can also see, a, you know, carrying somebody on my back <laughs> real quick. Hey, hey, Shelby, quick question for you. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Uh, so for someone who's thought about, you know, doing psychedelics and, you know, sometimes it can be overwhelming and you may be anxious and scared and all that type of stuff. What would be your message to someone out there that, you know, is thinking about it, but is just like, you know, shitting their pants, scared about it? <laughs> yeah, no, I appreciate, I appreciate that question. And James Fadiman, who I referred to before, a longtime psychedelic researcher basically says, if you don't want to do a psychedelic, don't. <laughs> um, <laughs> And, and, and I hear you on there's a lot of people who, who want to but are scared. They're kind of in that liminal space of they're not sure. Um, and I would say that psychedelics are, we always say it double blind, psychedelics are not for everyone and they're not going to fix all of your problems overnight. And it is a serious decision, especially if you think that you have a history of trauma, if you have a family or personal history of psychosis. Um, some other conditions which are absolutely contraindicated for psychedelics are bipolar and schizophrenia. So I'll put all of that out there. Um, okay. That being said, there are um, ex there are accessible. I don't want to say accessible from a cost perspective, but accessible as in if you do are are resourced, you can access experiences where you'll be supported as you're on a psychedelic um, and. Those include uh, enrolling in a clinical trial if you qualify, uh, doing a supported ketamine experience at, you know, at a ketamine clinic in the United States, or going abroad to a legal psychedelic retreat center. Uh, we have a list of vetted psychedelic retreat centers on our website that we trust um, in the Amazon, Costa Rica, Jamaica, the Netherlands, or elsewhere. And um, additionally, something you can do is you can um, engage a psychedelic integration therapist or you can attend a community integration circle. So something that we don't hear about much outside the psychedelic community, but which is kind of the name of the game within it now is integration. Integration is this idea that the psychedelic experience is not just about the experience itself, but it, it begins before and also requires work after. And so psychedelic integration therapy is a whole field of therapy that now exists that is set up specifically to help people understand why it is that they feel called to have a psychedelic experience, what psychedelic might be the best fit for them, if they're on any medications or have any, any prior mental health history that would be contraindicated with a psychedelic experience, et cetera. And if you ultimately decide you wanna have a psychedelic experience, it provides you with the tools that you need or 
I don't want to say that you need, but that will help you in navigating the experience itself. In the psychedelic community, something you'll learn about if you engage an integration therapist is that we like to demystify the notion that there's such a thing as a, quote, bad trip, right? That's what you're referring to. Yeah. Everyone's very afraid <laughs> that's of That's what we're afraid of. <laughs> Let's just be honest. Yeah, I mean, that's what, actually, yeah. The, the etymology of the word psychedelic means mind manifesting. So really, if you understand what the psychedelic experience is about, you'll come to understand that if you experience something on a psychedelic, it's not just like an uncomfortable, ex meaning, a meaningless, uncomfortable experience that you're going to have to endure and get through. The idea is that it's actually bringing things to the surface that live within your unconscious already to help you process them. That means that whatever anxiety, uh, sadness, laughter, light, love, whatever it is that you're experiencing lives within you already and you're probably experiencing on a much subdued level all of the time. And that is likely in, uh, a part of what is keeping you in your suffering and what is also calling you to have a psychedelic experience. And so what, one time before I sat in an ayahuasca journey, I was very scared because I had had some uncomfortable experiences before. And the facilitator said to me, faith is courage. Hmm. And the idea being that if you believe, if you truly believe that the psychedelic experience can get you to where you want to go in your life, that you will be able to hopefully chip away at some of the resistance and some of the fear because you understand that whatever happens is meant to happen. And that ultimately it's going to lead you to a place of wholeness and healing that you really, truly want more deeply than you fear whatever might happen within that four or six hour window. So would you say a bad trip that is referred to is, let's say I'm holding in all kinds of terrible things. I'm just blocking it out. And every time I think about it, you know, uh, smoke weed or just avoid it forever for 40 years and then I you know I, I do uh, you know ayahuasca or, or whatever and then maybe all that comes out and that's where people right. say the bad but that has to come out and then it goes back right. to what I said earlier where I, I'm telling you everybody I talk to that right that's done DMT ayahuasca their 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 whole demeanor their aura their uh, attitude is just different it's just different mm. I, I really see that. Yeah, I mean, also, something important that I want to say as well, though, is that I just said a lot of positive things about psychedelics, and that scenario that I paint where the whatever's living within you comes to the surface and you process it and you move through it and you feel lighter and happier in your life, that's the best-case scenario. Oh, great. But I also <laughs> think it's important to say that psychedelics, well... I'm just joking. What comes to the surface isn't always negative. Actually, oftentimes what happens in the psychedelic experience, the reason it's called a trip, is that you experience all kinds of emotions. So maybe for a moment you'll be sad, and then you'll be happy, and then you'll be laughing hysterically, and then you'll be crying, and then you'll be sitting in silence and looking out into the ether. I mean, it's not usually going to be one emotion for four to six hours. So a disclaimer that I'm going to add is that while oftentimes psychedelics do make people feel better after they do them, that that's not always the case. And sometimes they make people feel worse before they make people feel better because they bring a lot to the surface that needs to be processed, say, in therapy. Other times, they actually just flat out destabilize people. And this doesn't happen that often, but I reported a story on this for the magazine. Sometimes doing 
too much of a psychedelic or doing a psychedelic in a situation where you're not properly supported or doing a psychedelic simply when you do have a pre-existing mental health condition like a family or personal history of psychosis can cause someone to have a psychotic break. And so, um, yeah, I just think that those are important disclaimers because we hear a lot about the transformative experiences of psychedelics and we hear about how, you know, oh, this veteran, he had PTSD and then he went to the Amazon and he did ayahuasca and now all of his problems are resolved. And that's just not usually how it happens. Even if you do have a positive experience on a psychedelic, typically it's a lifelong journey of continuing to do psychedelics and continuing to process those experiences once they're over. And if people want more information, they can go to uh, your website. But are are there a lot of drugs that contradict with mushrooms and psychedelics? Like, we can go to the website and check. But, you know, if you're on, you know, say, uh, Klonopin from your shrink or you're on, you know, whatever, are there a lot of medications that interact? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not a physician, so I'll say that as a disclaimer. Um, my understanding is that there are not a lot of drugs that are contraindicated with mushrooms uh, and other classic psychedelics, although typically if you want to go to a retreat center or enroll in a clinical trial, they will require you to wean off of your SSRIs before you do that. Um, one drug that is contraindicated typically as well is lithium, if you're on lithium for bipolar, and also typically if you have active like you're actively overusing alcohol unless you're engaging and unless you're engaging in clinical trial where they're actually trying to heal that particular indication you will be contraindicated from participating in a in a supported psychedelic ceremony for example um and also usually people with some kind of history of cardiac issues are disqualified and, and I had read a lot of research that suggested that uh, using mushrooms to get off of alcohol, to get off of other drugs, has been shown to work in the data. Yeah, so the, the, the most robust data that we have looking at mushrooms is looking specifically at the synthetic version of the primary psychoactive component in psychedelic mushrooms, which is psilocybin, for major depressive disorder and treatment-resistant depression. So psilocybin has been given breakthrough therapy status by the FDA for both of those indications and are both in the final phase of research, phase three, prior to FDA approval. And we'll, wow. we anticipate seeing psilocybin in conjunction with therapy approved by the FDA within the next two years. There's been many, many clinical trials that have happened looking at other kinds of mental health conditions, including alcohol dependence, nicotine dependence, eating disorders. As, know, as, as I sit here and smoke nicotine. <laughs> as I sit here and hit um, nicotine, baby. <laughs> That being said, with very, very degrees of robustness and, um, you know, for alcohol dependence, for example, I would have to look at the data, but I don't think that there's been huge numbers of people who have gone through double blind randomized clinical trials for alcohol dependence. But generally speaking, in the psychedelic community, there is this hypothesis that 
mental health indications the way we understand them within the Western medical community, which is like there's the DSM, right, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual that's written by the APA, and it lists all the various diagnoses, is not really a very accurate way of understanding mental health. And that oftentimes what is happening on a deeper level is that people are people have trauma, whether it's from their own lives or even potentially, as mentioned before, um, there's a lot of interesting research coming out about epigenetics and this idea that we can inherit trauma from past generations and that the trauma is manifesting as mental health indications. Because you have to ask yourself, why is it that the same compound would be able to heal so many different conditions? Well, maybe actually they're not different conditions. It's the same condition, but it's just manifesting in different unhealthy coping mechanisms. How, how many states uh, are mushrooms legal to get or medically available at this time? There's been incredible progress in the realm of policy reform since even we started double blind in 2018. Currently, there are two states that have legalized psilocybin for therapeutic reasons. That's Colorado and Oregon. Psilocybin is, but those psilocybin is not available yet in either of those states because they're currently figuring out what those regulated systems are going to look like. So Oregon legalized psilocybin therapy. It's actually technically not psilocybin therapy. It's a supported psilocybin session for all adults in the state over the age of 21, regardless of whether they have a diagnosis, at the ballot box in November of 2020. And they are literally right now uh, starting to roll out this program. They're they're licensing uh, sort of healing centers or or, or sort of... uh, there's going to be retreat centers and all different kinds of locations where they can happen, but they're, they're licensing locations for these experiences. They're licensing um, people, who, facilitators who are going to qualify to support people while they're having these experiences. They're figuring out where the good manufacturing, uh, the GMP grade psilocybin is going to come from. So there's a lot to figure out. Um, Colorado just legalized in the last election psilocybin also for all adults in the state over the age of 21 and is currently figuring out what that system is going to look like and it's going to take about a year the government governor needs to appoint an advisory board and then from there that advisory board is going to be figuring out all these same questions um and in the other kind of main route that we've seen to reform has been um at the city level with the decriminalization of psychedelics. So this really began in May of 2019. Um, Denver became the first city in the United States to decriminalize psilocybin. Then less than a month later, Oakland decriminalized all natural psychedelics uh, through city council. And this includes like ayahuasca, psychedelics, um, mushrooms, iboga, really anything that's psychedelic that comes out of the ground. And then that, um, 
that initiative, which is called Decriminalize Nature, really took off and spread across the country. So now there's about a dozen cities, including Washington, D.C., Seattle, and San Francisco, that have decriminalized all natural psychedelics, except for peyote at the request of the Native American church. And really what this means is it's not true decriminalization. These initiatives are actually, what they're doing is they're making the possession, the gifting, and the use of these substances a low law enforcement priority. So this means that law enforcement is basically been told to no longer pay attention to folks who are doing this. Um, and uh, activists who are behind these initiatives are hoping that this is going to enable sort of a more community-oriented model of healing to emerge. Um, because there is a lot of concern about the psychedelic industry making the same mistakes the cannabis industry did and sort of outpricing uh, patients Street. and <laughs> making these treatments inaccessible. I've got a quick question. Though. Go ahead. Has there, uh, Shelby, has there been any um, crimes uh, due to psychedelics, meaning, you know, say somebody drinks and drives and they kill somebody drunk driving, right? Has there been any crimes associated with psychedelics that you know of? No, no. I mean, I don't want to say that there's never been a person in the history of time who yeah. has been on a psychedelic and committed <laughs> yeah, right. a crime or gotten behind the wheel, but I mean, it's it's just negligible relative to alcohol and, you know, traffic accidents and all the other major causes of death in the country now. I mean, mushrooms are very safe. And we now have robust clinical data showing that, right? Because before uh, uh, any compound or drug can can go through the, the drug development process, it first has to go through robust search around safety and efficacy among what's called healthy normals or people who don't have a diagnosis. Um, so, I mean, if someone was to do something that they shouldn't do on mushrooms like drive, um, you know, I mean that that would not be a good thing. But in this context of pe of these of these experiences only being legalized in supported environments with trained facilitators, I mean the risk is very very low. Wow! And uh, can you tell everybody about some of the courses you offer on your website? Especially I the uh, fraternity one. Maternity one's really cool. That I just came out with is psychedelics and maternity. Huh. <laughs> Yeah, so our bestseller is uh, we have a course on how to grow mushrooms, and we were very excited to partner with really the two leading um, mycologists, I would say, in the world on growing uh, psychoactive species of mushrooms, Dr. K. Mandrake and Virginia Hayes, who wrote the Psilocybin Mushroom Bible. And um, we have a team of five mycologists that support our students live in a Discord channel. So any questions they have about where to buy supplies or the regulating the temperature in their house or anything like that, we've now taught, I want to say, more than 5,000 people around the world how to grow mushrooms, which is super cool. And then... We also have, as mentioned, a class that teaches you everything you need to know on microdosing. We have a class on macrodosing, which is large dose experiences. So how do you pick the right psychedelic for you? How do you know the right dosage? How do you prepare for the experience? How do you navigate the experience? And how do you make sense of the experience once it's over? And then, yeah, our latest course, as you mentioned, is a course on psychedelics and maternity, which really gets into 
how moms and moms-to-be can engage with psychedelics to be the best for themselves and for their children. So getting back into this conversation around epigenetics, the generally speaking, the narrative within the psychedelic community is that if you don't heal it yourself and you have a, have a child, you're going to pass it on to your child. So we really get into what does it look like to break lineages of trauma. Oh, wow. That's really cool. That is really cool. You got anything else, Brock? I don't think so. All right, well, Shelby, thank you for your time. I, I hope we can uh, do this again and, and ask you some more questions. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. I appreciate it. It was fun.